Welcome back to the 7pm Cafe podcast. Today we have, for the first time, a return guest, Laura Virella, who we have the pleasure to interview and get to know in Spanish. And now we get to interview her in English for our English listeners. She is a Puerto Rican opera singer. Go grab your coffee, your tea, your favorite drink and listen. Welcome to the 7 p.m. Cafe Podcast. Today we have a returning guest, Laura Virella. She did a Spanish interview through Zoom while she was in Puerto Rico and I was in New York. And we are very happy to have her back and with us for an English episode for English listeners. Welcome back, Laura. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me twice. <laughs> <laughs> so for the people that didn't listen to the Spanish, didn't know Spanish, Laura is a Puerto Rican professional opera singer, mezzo-soprano, and actress. Before the pandemic and quarantine, Laura lived between Puerto Rico, New York, and Berlin. She's a graduate of the Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore, Maryland, where she got her BA in music, voice, and she went to the Manhattan School of Music here in New York for her master's in music and voice. And let me tell you guys <laughs> that you will hear New York noises. We are in the <laughs> Laura apartment, which we are very happy and thankful for her to open the doors for us. <laughs> we are at the top of the island of Manhattan and there's, yeah, there's all sorts of uh, flora and fauna and industrial fauna <laughs> to listen to. So last time we connected through Zoom, you were in Puerto Rico and now you're back. Tell us, for those who didn't know or didn't listen to the Spanish, how do your desire for singing and singing opera started? Ah, uh, yes, that is a famous story. <laughs> um, so apparently I, I was a baby who sang, like when I was, a, you know, before I even spoke when I was literally just a few months old my parents discovered that one day someone picked me up and I started humming to myself what they had been humming to me to put me to sleep and they're like wow this child <laughs> seems to have a musical talent and a liking for it and so that's what the the family folklore says and then you know years passed and when I was four years old My mother uh, brought in the newspaper one day and it happened to be that when she put it on the table, it, it landed open on this huge one ad page for auditions from the San Juan Children's Choir, the Coro de Niños de San Juan. And so my mother thought, well, you know, she loves to sing. Why not? Let's take her. Um, and I joined the San Juan Children's Choir, the preparatory level, when I was four, almost five. Um, and then being part of that uh, group of really young children, like one of my first years, the kids that were just slightly older, the from the elementary group had been engaged to sing in the opera Carmen in Puerto Rico at the Bellas Artes. There was like a big production. I think it might have been Placido Domingo as Don Jose. And so my parents thought, yeah, we should take the little girl to see the older kids so she sees what they get to do when they're older, you know? And so they took me and I was smitten, like <laughs> completely smitten. Like apparently at intermission, I declared, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be an opera singer. I am going to sing Carmen. And my parents were like, sure, sure whatever. Like, she's five, right? <laughs> and then, but the funny part of the story is that, of course, I was like, I was five. So I did not last <laughs> all the way till the end of the production. So I fell asleep before the fourth act. And it took 10 or 12 years for me to learn that Carmen dies in the end. And, um, you know, I, I was obsessed with the opera. I mean, I had a little, like, uh, tape 
cassette player where I had the production with Agnes Balsa and Jose Carreras on like constant play. But of course, when I was a child, I didn't speak French. So even though I heard the entire thing, I had no idea what was going on. No, no idea. I just knew that I really, really liked this music. I liked this woman. And so thank God that I grew up not only still with this single-minded like goal in mind, but that when I decided to go study music, I was lucky enough that Mother Nature had indeed made me a mezzo-soprano and not a soprano, because Carmen is written for mezzo-soprano. So I was able to follow my dream, and I've now performed the role, and it's, it's a cute story. <laughs> <laughs> so you told us that you live in Berlin. Tell us how you got to Berlin. Oof, by plane. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so, okay, so like after I graduated from my graduate studies in New York, I had a lot of debt, like a lot of people who go to, you know, grad school. So I stopped fully pursuing my singing career for a while so that I could go work in like corporate America. And then after a couple of years of that, I had paid off my debt sufficiently. And I realized like, what are you doing? You mm -hmm. want to be an opera singer. You do not want to be here. And then I thought, oh my God, but I've wasted time. So I felt like maybe I was a little bit aging out of the young artist uh, positions that one could get in this country. And I had heard that there were a lot more opportunities in Europe and that in the German-speaking nations, so like Germany and Austria and Switzerland, they had a specific system in which theaters are basically subsidized by taxes, by the government. Um, and so one could get like a full-time position called the FEST, a FEST contract. So I thought, okay, I should really go try my luck in that. And also because of my voice type being a lyric mezzo-soprano, the repertoire that I normally sing is in French or in German and at that point I spoke French but I didn't speak German like not really speak German so I thought the best thing that I can do for myself is go immerse myself in like German culture so that I am forced to truly learn the language and I was a little bit fearless at the time much more than I am now <laughs> so I had a little bit of money saved and I spoke no German and I was like I'm gonna take one like one course here in um, in New York and I went to like the Goethe Institute and I took like the first course of German and then I just booked a flight and I'm like I'm gonna go <laughs> the longest that one can stay in the European Union when you have an American passport is three months as a visitor mm -hmm. so I didn't have the whereabouts with me to plan ahead and be like I should try and get a visa or I should you know I just wanted to go mm -hmm. learn German do some auditions and see if I liked it and see if they liked me and I was going to like get hired so I left on January of 2012 with no return ticket And I lasted the whole three months. I came back like later that spring and I fell completely like madly in love with Berlin. Um, and I learned a lot of German and I started really liking language when originally I hadn't really liked it because I didn't really understand like its grammatical structure. I thought it was impossible to learn. And then when they taught me the right way, then I started falling in love with it. And I liked it very much, but at the time, uh, you know, I was married and my wife had a job in New York. She couldn't just pick up and go to Germany. So there was not an option for me to simply move. Mm -hmm. So we decided that I would do what I could do without getting a visa, which was three months here and three months there. And that's what I did for like seven years. And doing that, I had the great pleasure of guesting in different, like smaller, that's the train, <laughs> um, in smaller opera houses, like category C theaters in Germany and in Austria and in Spain and in Italy. Um, and I had like a base home, a base apartment, like little apartment in Berlin. And it was very easy for me to move around. And it's a time of my life that I not only do not regret, but like, I'm so grateful that I got through live to live through that. And I, the stories that I will have, to, you know, so that I can tell to my grandchildren at some point are amazing. And I feel like my life was really enriched by that, that experience. 
experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. So as we talked in the Spanish interview, I saw you, your work on Los Angeles. I was on vacation. I had a chance to catch Frida at the Plaza Open Air, the opera event, free event, and it was beautiful. The work, your performance, and it was around the sunset, so it added to the magic of the show. Yeah, you told me this, <laughs> which I, I thought is great because I, doing a small parenthesis, I once had an experience as well where a, a friend of mine invited me to go to the opening performance, like opening of the season that year at the Met. And when you have the open at the Met in New York City, the Metropolitan Opera, for the opening season, in addition to everything that goes on inside the opera house, which are like, you know, exceedingly expensive tickets and there's no way I would ever go in. <laughs> on that show um, but they do set up camp like around the city there are various places where you can see it on the big screen yeah. oh my god I don't even remember what opera it was I mean it was phenomenal I'm sure people were wonderful but I just remember being on the rooftop of I think it's Fordham College like next to Lincoln Center and there was this big screen set up on the west side of the roof so we're all we're we are sitting on the east side facing west which all that you see is this big screen and then like in the distance the Hudson mm -hmm. and then like the sunset over New Jersey basically and it was it was one of the most emotionally stimulating beautiful gorgeous things I've ever lived in my life like all the hairs went up in my arms I had goosebumps and I was just so grateful to my friend who happened to have an extra ticket and told me hey when you get out of work come see this and like it was supposed to be nothing right it's just like come from work in your office clothes have a latte and ha see the opera and yeah. it was like Whoa! espeluznante I know this should go in the Spanish version but that's the only word there is for it is espeluznante so anyway I I am grateful and honored to have been part of a similar experience for you mm -hmm. um, in LA because I'm sure that that sunset and that thing was added to the magic. If I'm not mistaken, the place where this took place was uh, like the grand performance stage in some big open mall yeah, yeah. Um, in Los Angeles. And wow, was that also an experience for me. I Frida was the first role that I did in a in that large of a house of an opera house an important opera house in the United States mm -hmm. and it was it was an incredible honor for me you know to be flown from New York to LA to portray this icon you know because Frida Kahlo is it, she sees us to be human now in the mind of most people right she's like a, a semi-Mexican deity <laughs> um, and uh, it was as part of Long Beach Opera and most of the performances had been at the museum for Latin American art in downtown uh, Long Beach. Um, and then we had these two or, two or three performances that were in downtown LA as part of his grand performances in the summer thing that they do. And it was crazy because it is in this open uh, mall area where you cannot control who comes in and who comes out. So a performance that had originally been given for like 350 people tops all of a sudden became a performance for thousands of people gathering 360 degrees around the stage. Mm -hmm. And wow, it was magical it was completely magical for me and not only will I forever remember this because it was my first big big gig in the United States but also how lucky did I get to work on this specific piece it is a magnificent piece by Robert Xavier Rodriguez um, and that incorporates it incorporates classical music together with a little bit of musical theater and jazz and like folkloric Mexican music and like Parisian style jazz of the era where when Frida was there in Europe and so it's just it's a very rich amazing piece and then the people the amazing cast of singers and the incredible team of people 
behind the scenes mm -hmm. that got this together for Long Beach. If you have a chance, you should, you know, go on, go online. You can certainly find photos of the production, you know, Frida Long Beach Opera. I think it was 2017. Yeah, I think so. I mean, LA is the mecca of Mexican culture in the United States. So if you do not find authentic food and authentic uh, vestuario, wardrobe, and authentic Mexican things in LA, it is simply because you're not looking. Yeah. Um, but these people made it their business. I mean, the conductor and the director were a, uh, a gentleman from Belgium and a gentleman from Austria. So they they felt like we really need to make sure that this is authentic and it's going to be beyond what we can provide. Mm -hmm. So we had a team of incredible Latina women. Um, there was a Puerto Rican woman and a Mexican woman and just, you know, people who specialize in these things and they went into uh, the movie industry section of LA and into the Mexican centers and just got the most amazing pieces for me to wear and not only for me but for the girl who played my sister and for the guy who played Diego. It was it was exceptional. What they did was exceptional and um, I just feel lucky beyond you know measure to have been part of that. Yeah, I think uh, this is something that I didn't share in Spanish, so you guys get this scoop. It was, we just found, because there was like big posters of like the production and like this is happening. And from my perspective, I don't know if because it was Frida or it's because it's something that seems like they do every summer, like right. this kind of shows. But when we went, we almost didn't even have like found place to sit because there's people like camping like they went hours before like they had food like people like were very prepared and there was a lot of people like there was almost like we almost said like there was like some stairs going yeah. down because like it was like going up on the seats it's like bleachers yeah yeah so <laughs> We almost like said like in the corner of like the stairs to be able to see the show because it was so full. It was yeah. I mean the the closest thing that I can think of that it reminded me of by the sheer number of people and by the attitude of like we are basically camping out and bringing our picnic and having very laid back fun. I love that. I think that opera should always be like that. It should be very laid back, like accessible to everyone, have children running and screaming all they want. Because mm -hmm. that's what theater is about, right? But the only thing that it reminds me of was the times that I either performed or went as an audience member um, to Wolf Trap in Virginia. But the Wolf Trap opera, summer opera in Virginia, uh, when you perform in the in the stables or in the, like, the, there's this open, open, open field where people set up all sorts of things to go see the show. But it is much more of a countryside kind of feel mm -hmm. and so this had that feel but in a complete urban setting like everywhere that you looked around there was a skyline of like the LA you mm -hmm. know urban jungle mm -hmm. and uh, it, yeah it was it was definitely magical <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes and like you said like the wardrobe the production it almost felt like not only that you were watching like an opera but it almost felt like a film like ah. It was such a good production, like you saw the quality of it. Because yeah. like some productions that do open, they might, maybe because they don't have a good budget, but like it looks like less, like they put less work because they're going right. to a free event. So like they don't bring the quality that right. you pay for, but it felt like you were paying for it because it felt like good quality. That's awesome. From everything. That was all me, you know, I had to do it with everything. <laughs> no, no, kidding, kidding, kidding. I got completely, I mean, you know, as a singer, you don't know. You mm -hmm. just go and stand and you do your job. Mm -hmm. You act and you sing and you hope to God that <laughs> what you're wearing looks slightly like your character. Mm -hmm. You know, no, but um, the man behind the vision was Andrea Mitisek. Mm -hmm. He 
was at the time the artistic director of Long Beach Opera. And he is a phenomenal director. And as far as I understand it, he came originally from being an instrumentalist himself and then a conductor. And then from conducting, he decided to go into this design. And he is really genius. And I think that um, because, of, because of the constraints of having to build a show for where it was, which was actually the Latin American Museum, and it was not inside the museum. The show happened in the courtyard, the center courtyard of the Latin American Art Museum. Um, and it was going to be at sunset every single day outside in a courtyard where you basically build a stage that was just it was just a race platform mm -hmm. and that it's that creates a certain level of uh you know the magical atmosphere of the thing because of the beauty the beauty not only the natural beauty of the sunset every single day but the beauty of the of the um it was a sculpture garden that we were in so it already creates a certain type of thing on the other hand you are building a stage and you're building a place for an orchestra in a place that is not acoustically set up for music and you are building a a visual element you know the theater element uh at a very difficult time of day because you're start, starting in full sunlight mm -hmm. and then you get into the reds and oranges and these like long what do you call it, like sideways shadows that you get at sunset mm -hmm. and then you're going to end up in the middle of the night so he had to come up with something that was going to use that turn to its advantage mm -hmm. um, and then when we brought it to LA it was just it was just adapting it to a, a larger stage and hoping that it would read to a much larger audience so it brings me great joy to know that you were out there I presumably not very close to the stage right no, no. <laughs> and that you still got that feeling of that proximity as if you were watching a film and you know that has to be you know chapeau to the idea and the design of mm -hmm. Andrea Mitisek because that was all him Mm -hmm. Definitely. And like you said, like, this is one of the questions is like, how do you feel about doing Frida? Because when I, when I saw it, I swear that I thought you were Latin American. Like, I thought you were Mexican or Salvadorian. And when I saw the program, it says Puerto Rican. I'm like, wow, like, you did get into that character that he read yeah. Mexican. You know what I mean? Like, how do you felt doing such an icon for the Mexican culture in Los Angeles? Because yeah. it's like, you can be in the middle of, like, Midwest or whatever doing this. And, like, you don't have to worry that much. Right. <laughs> doing in a place where the most culture in Los Angeles is Mexican. Right, right. Well, first of all, that it's it's a great compliment for me to know that a fellow Puerto Rican did not recognize me as a Puerto Rican <laughs> while I was on the stage. That's great. Yeah, it was very intense. And I'm going to tell you, this happened in 2017, which was already at the height, I think, of what we have been living for the past few years in the United States, where uh, people are re-examining the notions and stereotypes that some groups have about others, mm -hmm. and how, you know, where the line is between honoring a culture and borrowing from a culture and stealing from a culture, um, and what people have dubbed cultural appropriation, right? In my, in my personal idea of things, uh, the intention of the party that is doing, that is the one using the culture that is not their own that definitely to me ha has to do a lot with whether or not whether or not you define what they're doing as an act of appropriation right but when you're on the stage your your motive or your your intention you know it doesn't even go into it doesn't factor into the equation of what you're supposed to do you got hired to do a role so I was very aware on the one hand that I had been hired on in a on a certain level for authenticity because from a an anglophone or a or a germanic descent person 
then me being Hispanic, which which I am, I am Latin American and Hispanic, I am Puerto Rican, it made me a lot closer to the character. But I also knew I was going to go into California and into Southern California, and that once you get, you know, the white people, and I don't like say I don't like to say white people because actually I think that Spain is also white people, and a lot of <laughs> us are very much Spaniards, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but uh, the Northern European descent people have an idea in this country that uh, Latin America and like Hispanic people in general general are kind of a monolith right like we're one big group of uh socioeconomic uh cultural background people and that is actually it could not be farther away from the truth the latin american fabric of culture is so incredibly rich and so varied and so i knew as a Hispanic person, that me being Puerto Rican has zero to do with anyone being Mexican. And I did not want to go in and offend any, the Mexican community in in California because I, A, because I got hired to do something that a Mexican person should have done or a Mexican-American person, or B, even if they looked beyond that, because I did some disservice to their culture or to the, the way that they are. So I parted from the premise that the most respect that I could pay to them, the best thing that I could possibly do to honor them and their culture was to be as authentic a human being as I could possibly be. And so I approached Frida. I tried to forget about who Frida was. Forget about the icon, forget about the, the 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 paintings that you know, and just portray her as a woman that you've never encountered before and and find in the libretto the moments that show what your inner person is, regardless of the fame that you later acquired. Because at the time being, as at the time being, at that time when, when Frida was living, mm-hmm. Frida was not an icon. Frida did not know that she was going to explode into this thing that she has become. As a matter of fact, Frida become became way more mainstream in, in this country, in the United States, after the Hollywood film, right? So like prior to that, she was not even in the vernacular of people who are not of Latin descent. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go back to that, to like, I don't know who she is. The Hollywood movie has not happened. <laughs> Um, I am a person who has had a, I'm an incredibly brilliant person of immense complex cultural background because Frida's father was German. Mm-hmm. Frida spoke German. Frida spoke Spanish. She spoke English. Her mother was half indigenous, half Spanish, right? She was Criolla. So in that sense, I felt like, okay, I am actually very much like Frida. You know, I am a Puerto Rican who is vastly of Spanish descent. And then I have a great deal of indigenous descent in me as well. And then like every other Puerto Rican, I have like, you know, some African, some Irish, some this. We have a whole... But in, you know, to summarize it, I'm a mutt. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a dog of no breed. I'm of many breeds. And my mutt composition, genetic composition, is quite similar to Frida's. So, you know, she's this person who speaks many languages. I speak many languages. She's interested in art. I'm interested in <laughs> art. She was excellent at the specific art that she did. You know, she did a different art that I did. But how, di- how difficult could that be to, like, translate, right? Mm-hmm. And then I, I let other people make me look like her. I didn't worry about whether or not I looked like Frida, whether or not I was dressing like Frida. I worried about walking in the way that someone who has a, uh, you know, she had a limp because she had a whole bunch of, uh, she had polio as a child for one thing, so one of her legs was underdeveloped. And then she had a horrid uh, trolley accident that left her with a whole bunch of fractures that her body was never the same again. So I, I worried about like, remember to carry yourself like someone who has been through a lot of pain. And then the libretto was mostly in English. There was some Spanish thrown in and I decided you know as a Puerto Rican person I grew up my entire life with a lot of Mexican uh, cinematography Mexican uh, TV shows 
and Mexican dubbing of a lot of shows that were original in English and then when they dub them for the Spanish market, it's Mexican. So I had a pretty good grasp on the Mexican accent and I thought I will do that when I'm speaking in, in Spanish. But when I'm speaking in English, I have no idea what Mexicans really sound like when they're speaking in English and I think that it's going to come across as fake. So I'm just going to go ahead and have my own accent. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I did was on occasion, I would give a little bit of an accent that just has a little bit more of like the Mexican intonation, mm -hmm. you know, because I could also, I could tell you, I could totally talk like this all the time and I know I'm being completely Puerto Rican, okay, <laughs> because I'm just using like the complete and total, like the way that we use our voice in Puerto Rico, like melodically speaking, but mm -hmm. then I'm just using like the English words. So I did that same thing, I practiced doing that, but with the Mexican intonation. Mm -hmm. And then the rest was the magic of theater, like what these people did to make me look mm -hmm. like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> when I was talking about indigenous, you know, folkloric dresses and jewelry and just, mm -hmm. you know, and then be this real woman because it's also a way to pay my respect, like an homage to Frida herself. No person is ever born thinking, I want to be an icon and represent this entire category of people. Like, mm -hmm. that is not true. We are not categories. We are individuals. And I, I did my best to try to dig into the reality and the drama of her life you know, beyond the scandals, beyond the semi-abusive relationship with Diego, you know, and just like find the real normal person within that is just discovering herself and experimenting life for the first time as it happens to her, mm -hmm. you know? And so that was what I tried to do. <laughs> yeah, I feel like from my perspective, you did good. <laughs> and now I blush. <laughs> I think that's like, that's a side note, but like, I like that aspect that sometimes we take these icons to hide and we forget that they're human beings. And that's yeah. why like, we have these tabloids making this bad connotations about them if they do something wrong, because we forget that they're human too. They're fallible. Yeah. Yeah, they're flawed. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I feel like, Even in, in, the, in recent years, I have read some, I don't even remember if there were real articles or maybe they were just memes on Facebook, um, but, you know, encouraging young women to not have Frida as a, as, a, as a role model, as an example to look at because her relationship with Diego was so complex, but they reduce it like it was an abusive relationship and she had a tortured life and you should strive to be better. And I feel like that is unfair. Mm -hmm. You know, um, first, I don't know, I, I don't know that I would categorize this as a tortured relationship. And again, I didn't live through it. Okay. And I am not an expert in Frida, but from what I have seen and from, I had to study in order to try to become her or like approach her. It was not tortured. It was very complex, very complex. And he did horrible things to her. She did horrible things to him as well. And in the end, she was in control of her choice. She was a strong woman and she could have walked away and it's not like she needed him. So she had to go, no, no. <laughs> she made a choice mm -hmm. this hurts in many ways but it also gives me a lot of joy and I understand that good does not exist without bad happiness does not you cannot experience happiness without having known what sadness is and you cannot experience like being elated without having experienced great pain mm -hmm. so she decided to take humanity with what it came all of it together mm -hmm. and live it like in a raw passionate completely through everything she never went around experiences she went through them and I respect that and I think that 
as society we should we should value that complexity in the human experience and like and foment that children grow up knowing that life is complex mm-hmm. that there are a million trillion shades of gray and of every color in this universe and not to be so black and white on any issue mm-hmm. because you're never going to be able to live up to that expectation of yourself is what if that's what you're striving for constant moral perfection mm-hmm. and no no gray area you know no shades you will never be able to live up to that yeah exactly and like we only see the good parts like the art how many she may have done that we never see because as an artist like they create a thousand stuff and then you see the one that right. you know is the good one but they have many fails and many stuff that they didn't believe in right to get to the point where they were right 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 and that and life takes you places you never know why you end up in a certain place and then how you will excel or not at it something that is very different between Frida and me is that I have really truly wanted to be an opera singer since I was five years old and in that way I'm very very single-minded which is not normal and not everyone who is in opera will tell you this and that is okay you do not have to be as single-minded as I am mm-hmm. um, and Frida herself she did not intend to become a painter mm-hmm. Frida was bedridden for months without end when she was very young because she had this accident when she was 18 and she was literally broken and in a full body cast forever so she was bored out of her mind (laughs) and because she was bored out of her mind she decided to borrow some oil paints from her father who did like to paint Mm-hmm. So she had grown up in an environment in which like artistic expression was an option, but it doesn't mean it was going to be a career. But because she couldn't do anything else, she could only use her hands. Then she started painting. Like literally her mother got her an easel that was placed above her bed, parallel to her body, which was parallel to the ground, not perpendicular to the ground, right? She was lying down like Michelangelo doing the Sistine Chapel, you know? <laughs> um, and so this is what she did to keep herself distracted. And if, if she tapped into the horridness of like, human pain like physical pain and she was able to put this on her paintings it's not because she had an obsession with the dark but rather because she was trapped in it Mm -hmm. so like circumstances put her in a place that this was her subject matter why was she in every single painting that she had because she didn't go out to see the world Mm -hmm. she had mirrors so she saw herself and then she imagined herself in different scenarios and that is the genius of it right but yeah and then of course the talent is there and she had all the time in the world to develop it Mm because she had nothing else to do (laughs) so one should also take into consideration these things like geniuses are not just solely born Mm -hmm. they are made by circumstances and they are made by the choices that one decides to make under great pressure and under unforeseen circumstances it Mm -hmm. takes both Mm -hmm. both things Mm -hmm. so like you said um you saw carmen when you were a kid tell us the experience of doing carmen it was the first time that i did carmen i was still a student at the Peabody Conservatory. And it felt like, I felt like I was a kid in a candy store, right? <laughs> I could not believe my luck that um, that the conservatory had chosen to do a production of Carmen and that I had been cast. At the same time, uh, the Carmen that I did then, I was an undergrad. It was a chamber version of the opera that uh, it is an arrangement made by Peter Brooks and it has a considerably reduced orchestra, like less than 20 people, only four characters, no chorus. And so it was a, it was really a learning experience more than anything else 
I got to finally have my dream of singing these arias that I loved a lot, but I also uh, got a, it was a study on the role, a study on who Carmen was as a woman. Because when you reduce a four act opera to a 50 minute opera and to only four characters, it becomes much more of a, a theatrical piece, right? Like there's a lot of like the psychology of the relationships that is happening between these four characters that goes into it. And it, it allowed me to explore the music in a way that I didn't have to compete with a 60 piece orchestra when I was so young. And it also um, allowed me to explore and to learn about my vocal technique because all of a sudden I had to fit four or five arias that normally are spread out in three and a half hours. They all came back to back within the first 45 minutes of the show. And I am grateful because then I had my teachers and my coaches and the people that were help shape, helping to shape me as a young adult artist. I got to share with them in the preparation of this role so that when I got to do it again and it was the full production with the full orchestra and the full chorus and the full everything I knew I, I felt so prepared you know I knew my French had been coached by the magnificent Thomas Grubb I knew I had studied the character and become more of the woman that Carmen was under the tutelage of John Lehmeyer and I knew that the music and my vocalisms had been uh, you know, picked apart uh, under Joanne Coleza. And so I knew I could do this. And I knew that I could sing all of the hard things back to back. So now that I have three and a half hours, this was a piece of cake, <laughs> right? And I knew also, you know, years and years later that I was now a real adult with a real voice that had been brought into its like maturity place. And I was able to do it with orchestra. And it was just, it was, it was a gift because now I could enjoy. There was no more like being nervous about like, do I know when to come in? Am I able to sing this high A? Will I be heard through the orchestra when I'm singing a low B? None of that. It was just like... Like, I've been doing this for years and years and years, and this was what I've been preparing for. And the other joy was that I got to do it in uh, in Spain. I did this actually in Catalonia um, at the Festival de Santa Florentina in Caldes de Strac in Catalonia. And so, wow, what a, what an amazing thing to do, uh, you know, to do a show about this bohemian a uh, woman in southern Spain doing it with Spanish musicians with a Spanish conductor Diego Martín Echevarria who was phenomenal and the Philharmonica of Catalonia and then uh, Susana Gomez who is this also incredible stage director feisty woman with like this she has an edge and a feminist outlook about the world that is not the stereotypical you know thing it's just a, you know being strong in your convictions being fully yourself just what I was talking about with Frida you know mm -hmm. Susana is that person and she allowed me she gave me free reigns to be that person as Carmen as well because Carmen is another role that can be very very easily pigeonholed and very be very stereotypically cast as like well she was just a woman of loose morals who liked to sleep around and she like devoured men no that is not true Carmen was a strong young woman who had to live in a world that was governed by men and she didn't want to be tied down. She didn't want to be, you know, to have to have a husband in order to have a place in society. So she worked. She was a working woman. She worked at the cigarette factory. And she had the lovers that she had because she wanted to. <laughs> but she she felt she felt deeply, you know. So she was deeply in love with Don Jose. And that turned out to be an abusive relationship. And she had the gut in her to break away from it. I don't want this anymore. And then she was in love with Escamillo. And eventually, you know, it ended in her death because he was an abuser and he came after her. And 
sheep and he killed her and she did not flee from her fate from what was going to happen but you know it's not that she died because she stayed in the abusive relationship and didn't know how to fight back it's just it's a tragedy and it happens this is how life is so it was it was a wonderful thing for me and I am also very proud to say and I must thank Thomas Grubb for all of the years of instruction that um, after the second performance the concert master uh, came to me one night like when we were getting out of costume and he said hey uh, I came to find you because someone from the audience was looking for you and they had to leave they left but they wanted me to tell you they were on vacation here in Spain from France and they came to me to ask me if I knew the girl that played Carmen if she was French <laughs> and, and there's like no I think she is uh, she speaks Spanish I think she's uh, Puerto Rican or something she's from like <laughs> Latin America somewhere you know the Spanish don't know either like and they were like whoa because her her dialogues and her pronunciation while singing was so spot on French and I'm gonna tell you I'm not fluent I mean I speak French but I'm not fluent like that in French it's all faking it and I fake it because Thomas Grubb is the king of French diction. <laughs> and I had the great uh, honor and privilege of studying with him at Peabody. So thank you, Peabody Conservatory. And thank you, Thomas Grubb, for your service. That must be like an amazing feeling that you worked so hard and then to get a compliment like that at the end, of, like at the middle of the performance to yeah. know that, okay, I'm doing it right. I feel like as an artist, we always need that affirmation. Yes. Like we don't, we shouldn't, but we need it. Like, we need someone to tell yeah you're doing the job right it's important for the soul let me tell you because you know as an opera singer you are constantly preparing for the thing that you're doing and it doesn't matter how much how often you've done a role every single time you go to a new production you have new ideas from the new director the new conductor and there will be coaches and there will be language coaches and their job is to criticize mm -hmm. I mean that's their job if you want to get better at what you're doing then you have to point out all of the errors or all of the things that are areas of improvement so that you can improve And that's a great thing. And when you get to do it with wonderful colleagues that are nurturing about it, you know, it doesn't, it's a good thing. They, it doesn't tear you down. But it also leaves you always with this sense of like, I've never arrived. You're always working on something and you're always, you know, always worrying about what's the next thing that you could be doing better. Ultimately, though, we have to remember that the audience is whom we do the art for right? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise we would do it in a theater with no people on the seats. <laughs> it would be just for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the art is not for ourselves. It is for the audience. And the vast, vast, immense majority of the audience are not coaches and conductors and directors or professional musicians in any way. Mm -hmm. So their opinion is the one that we take least into consideration when we are preparing the role but it's ultimately the one that we should take most into consideration when we perform they are the ones who are there to see you they are the ones who, whose lives you're touching and if you don't do your job well you know if you're like technically perfect but you don't connect with them on an emotional level or you offend in any way because you have done something wrong that has nothing to do with the technical perfection of your language or the music then you end up not having an audience then they won't like you they don't they don't come again mm -hmm. so the fact that you have audience members that enjoy something enough that will go beyond the applause to actually take the time to try and reach you and tell you this is what i liked about you or to tell you and it has happened to in the past I saw you on such and such thing and then when I heard that you were doing this other thing I knew I wanted to see you again mm -hmm. in whatever you're doing that is the greatest compliment that an artist could ever receive is knowing that they have touched someone and that that person was touched in such a special way by you that they seek out to be touched by you again 
mm-hmm. or that they want you to they want to return the favor by touching you on an emotional level and letting you know you did this and I saw it and it was good and it changed me and you should know and that woof that's just something that para pelos <laughs> like I said espeluznante it makes your hairs come up you know it makes your hairs come up yeah I feel like when you were saying that it, I miss so much the live shows oh my god <laughs> yes if COVID took one thing from me this year it was that that um yeah that opportunity because mm-hmm. oh my god do I love singing yes I love singing and as you can see I have a nice living room with a nice piano and I can sing here all day if I want to <laughs> this is not what I am in it for mm-hmm. yes I enjoy the act of singing but my god like what I want is to sing to someone and have feedback mm-hmm. you know even if the feedback is not always like I loved it maybe they say like mm, I'm not sure that I like that song okay mm-hmm. but we had a communication here oh, oh. we established a bridge through music mm-hmm. and that is what I miss the most in the world and like no video performance no recording will ever be able to substitute having that live thing where like your performance is influenced by the energy that the audience is putting back into mm-hmm. you as you mm-hmm. are still in it mm-hmm. that is epic that is everything to me I feel like I done a lot of backstage and even as a part of the team like if the performance is going good and that you feel the audience you even feel it so like it's a whole doesn't matter where you work in the show like you will feel it yeah it's something that if you've never done it like you don't, you would not understand that feeling it's like a vibration right yeah. it's like an like an electric current that mm-hmm. takes hold of the entire place where everyone is doing anything mm-hmm. to make this performance happen and it's like before the show starts you have all this stress like you're all this worries that something's going bad or like something it's not coming at us but as soon as it starts and you get that feedback it's like this is why we're doing this yeah. like this is why com- we torture ourselves <laughs> <laughs> that's the confirmation that it is worth it yeah definitely so tell us a little bit about what were you doing before the pandemic It's been so long. I don't remember the before times. <laughs> no. Before the pandemic, I was actually working on a specific type of project that it was it was my first time doing something like this. Um, there's an organization in New York City called the American Opera Project, and they are devoted to producing, like to to supporting new opera, new American opera, United States opera. And uh, one might ask, well, how do you do that? Like you will produce a show. Yeah, but before a show is produced, you know, it's composed. And before it is composed, there's a libretto that is written. And all of this takes not only a lot of time and effort from librettists and composer and the advisors that go into it, but it's a lot of trial and error. You have to see your lines spoken before you know whether or not they work and you have to hear your music sung and played before you know whether or not that's what you want. So there's a lot of workshopping that happens. So the American Opera Project decided to collaborate with NYU and their department of, I don't, I don't know if it's like musical theater or like classical composition or what it is, but they got a, a crop of uh, graduate students, like really high level composers that are uh, now going into uh, longer compositions, so opera. and. So they they partnered with the American Opera Project so that the American Opera Project would provide for them professional opera singers. And the professional opera singers would come for X number of sessions and we would 
help in the workshop by reading the characters that they are writing for us. Um, and then in the end, they were going to produce like one one act, like very short operas, like the equivalent of a of a short film, right? But in opera. And there was going to be a concert. This was going to all happen around the time of Earth Day. So there were going to be all of these like eco-friendly and like green matter, green subject operas. And I was involved, I don't know, in like three or four of them with a bunch of really fun singers that I've known for a very long time and we've done a lot of shows together and so here we are reading random characters and <laughs> it was wonderful we got to go once or twice a week to NYU and 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 sing new music and tell the composers how it was easy or not easy to sing how the if the text was well said or poorly said and why and and give them not only our professional interpretation and experience of what is good writing for the voice but also the varied experience of like what it is really good writing for me specifically mm -hmm. because one can understand like what is good for the voice but every single singer is slightly different so then it's good when you like develop relationships with different singers you acquire the the tools um, to know how to approach it how to ask so that you can if you ever end up being a composer that will write a song cycle for a singer you are sure that you're able to do it in the way that best fits the singer and the pianist and whomever else is involved in the song cycle um, so we were doing that and boom the pandemic happened and you know we were very lucky because while many organizations were simply shutting down and leaving artists stranded with no pay, the American Opera Project made it a point to try to honor the contracts that we, they had with us. And they, you know, they, they paid us for the time that we had already invested. And they continue to support the idea that when everything opens, they will reach out to the same group of people to see if we can finish where we had left off, like just continue. There's always a chance that we will be engaged doing something else and someone else will have to do it. But but I thought it's it's a great program that they had. It is a good thing for the students that were involved. It was a good thing for the professional singers that were involved and uh, I really look forward now that we're seeing like the vaccines and the horizon and everyone's getting their shots <laughs> little by little to like live stuff happening again and collaborating with like this new generation of music makers you know mm -hmm. it's a good thing people should if you have the chance you should go online and you should look up the American Opera Project and go see the shows that they do and support them in any way you can yes so tell us how the pandemic affected you uh, <laughs> The pandemic changed my life entirely and it, it has been in it has been actually more in good ways than in bad, I have to say. And that is, you know, I have to preamble anything that I say by saying that I understand that this has been horrific for the economy mm -hmm. and that way I mean way, way too many people have been lost and even those who did not die, you know, so many people have been very, very poorly affected by by the illness itself and so and a lot of people have lost a lot of money it has been horrid and i acknowledge this so i am in full disclosure speaking from a, a place of incredible privilege so the pandemic stopped everything and at first you know i i thought it was going to be like two three months at the maximum and then everything was going to reopen and now it has been over a year of our lives and it has we were lucky because my wife had a she has a full-time job that was able to be converted to remote Mm -hmm. So she has continued to earn a living and I lost all of my income as an artist, but I have other things that I do on the side that can also be done remotely. So I've continued to work and then it has taught me patience and it has, it has taught me perspective. It is 
it's not the first time in my life that I have had to stop singing. There were other times in my life for medical reasons and for different reasons that I had to stop singing and I hated it. And I hated it to the point that I knew then that this was the career that I had chosen and this was the career that I continued to choose. So this is the only thing I ever wanted to do. But perhaps because I had had to stop against my will, I had to physically not sing. So when I was not singing professionally, I was not singing at home either. Mm-hmm. So those periods of time, I remember them as very dark periods of time in which I was very unhappy. And so it was very clear in my mind that if I could not sing and I could not have my career, then I was not going to be a happy person. But this year has gifted me the opportunity to see what it is to be able to sing Mm -hmm. and yet not to be able to have a career. And at the same time, it eliminated that pressure that it was like, I'm not having a career when careers are out there to be had. Other people are having careers, but I am not. Mm -hmm. This is not the case. No one is having a career. (laughs) So there was no pressure or no no sense of like, I am wasting time. I'm not wasting time. There's nothing to do. We are all just treading water. And I am actually very grateful for that because it allowed me the time to fully work on my singing and my technique and my approach as an artist without the pressure that I felt from the business. Mm -hmm. Without feeling like I need to go audition and I have to book my next gig and then I need to make this money out of that gig because if I don't make the money out of the gig then I'm not a serious singer and if I'm not a serious singer what am I doing with my life you know <laughs> so I am I am a serious singer like everyone else like all of the people who were you know the, the, the main like the lead roles at the Metropolitan Opera and all of them have been doing nothing mm-hmm. for the entire year and there I am with them the great you know even playing field <laughs> right and at the same time then it also meant that I could go do things that I had not been able to do because my career didn't allow me to so because of my career I had to be always available at the drop of a hat at the drop of, in one moment to fly anywhere for an audition or for a gig that meant that I could not plan to be with my family in Puerto Rico for X number of, of days or, or you know weeks now that I had nothing else to do as long as I was being safe and I could quarantine and I was taking all of the precautions I could go back home Mm-hmm. and like experience life as an adult in Puerto Rico which I've never gotten to do because I moved away when I was 18 mm-hmm. and I had all of this time to see my parents and not not miss out on their lives every time I go back home which was really often but not for long periods of time I felt like I was missing out like my parents were getting older I could see that they were older every time I went Mm -hmm. and it pained me deeply to know that I was missing out on their lives and the same thing with my grandmother who is even older like my grandmother just turned 102 (laughs) so yeah so you know every time that I saw her it was like it could potentially be the last time and I'm missing out like there's so much goodness to be had with my family I'm so Mm -hmm. close to them and I'm just simply missing out and sometimes I even wonder if I was missing out selfishly because I was going after the things that I wanted Mm -hmm. that they didn't take into consideration what they wanted or what they needed so this year was a gift for me to not turn my back on what I wanted but be able to shift my focus to other things that I also wanted and that included what my family wants which is my presence my help you know me just being there like the time together Um, so my wife and I spent uh, three months there in the summer and then we came back to New York in the fall because we had some like things that we needed to do here and then we went back in the winter and so I'm also very grateful that while being in lockdown I was able to escape being in the winter here because as a tropical person even though I moved (laughs) here when I was 18 you know I grew up in paradise 
and I need sunlight and I need warmth and I can manage. I can manage in a winter anywhere else as long as I have the other things that are what are keeping me busy, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm making art, if I'm seeing friends, if I'm being productive, then you, the weather is just like a side note. But when you have nothing else that you're doing and you're like just locked up in your own home, having super short days with super cold weather and like no... No, even even in the daylight, it's not really sunny. Mm -hmm. It's something that can get you down very, very quickly. And that is a scientific fact for everyone around the globe, but it's especially so for people who grew up in the tropics because we are used to having constant vitamin D from mm -hmm. the sun. So we escaped. We went to Puerto Rico and I got to um, open the, a house where my grandmother used to live and like um, fix it so that my wife and I could make a home there. And it has been a year of intense, wonderful learning. Learning. learning about how important the career is or isn't learning about how much you can give to your family and in what ways learning about yourself like as you're sitting there with your own thoughts for a very long period of time mm -hmm. and so there's has been a lot of like self-awareness that I have acquired from this time period and in our relationship as well because when you have to be with your spouse 24 7 you know but you also have to manage and there's also work so like there's a work-life balance that now doesn't have separate places everything happens in one place it's been a learning experience and a good one i think so i am grateful for that for 2021 and moving on what do you see your career in opera Oof. for 2021 and moving on honestly i no longer have as clear a vision as i used to have of what i wanted my career to be like the thing about the career the operatic world and and this coming year is that i truly believe that the experience that everyone has lived through over the past year covid changed the world mm -hmm. so when the new normalcy comes it's not going to be like the normal that we had before and that's very important because that means that every notion or every idea that we could have about what we thought our careers should be moving mm -hmm. forward all of that is rooted in the way that we knew the world to be prior to the pandemic and the world has changed mm -hmm. so i don't know what my career is going to be like i am waiting with bated breath to see how things are going to reopen and how it's going to be so that then i can see where my place is going to be in the new hierarchy and in the new system that we're going to build. I What I hope more than anything is that there will be space for everyone. The fear that I have had is that if, if, big, if the smaller companies took a hit, like the very, very small companies, then, you know, that's very sad and there's like no place for like entry-level people to develop their art. I'm a little bit past that. But if the top, top companies, like the Metropolitan Opera, the Lyric, opera in Chicago, San Francisco, but if they took a big hit financially and when they reopen, they have less work or they have less money to give. That means that all of those people that had been working on these top level companies, the A-level companies, are going to face a choice. Either you take less work and you partially retire or you fully retire, or if you cannot retire because you must continue working, you're going to have to take work at the next level down, which is the B-level house. And if they do that, then they're going to displace people that are in the B-level and in the C-level. You know, every everything will keep moving down and displacing people. And so, you know, at the C-level and B-level, that's where I work. So then I would be displaced. And that is a fear that I had. And it is, it is a reasonable fear. You know, it's normal that people will think this way. But it's also an irrational fear because we don't know what is going to happen. And, and we don't know... You know, we don't know what level I would have been if I started singing again in the world that we just left last year. Mm -hmm. So what I am hoping is that opera is going to shift 
in certain ways and they will figure out ways to reach out to more people and to include more people so that we can all uh, even the people who were in the super entry level can find a place to work in bigger places that will let them move up little by little and that there will be work for all and that is my hope and i think that that is a hope pretty much of every opera singer that i know Mm-hmm. Um, because contrary to probably popular belief, the artistic world is not this cutthroat place where we just want everyone else to fail so that we can succeed. Mm-hmm. Opera is a very, very much community-based art form. And so what we want is to go back out there with our community, with our people, and do what we do all together. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone has a role to play. That's all that I am hoping, really, that we can get back to that, to making great art collectively for people in real time, like in the same space. Yes, I feel like that's one of the things that happened at the beginning. We thought it was going to be a few months and we were going back to normal. But after a year and more, we have to realize that it's going to be a new normal. It's yeah. never going to be nothing, not, not in the arts and nothing in our lives is going to be the same anymore. Mm-hmm. This is like the new moving on yeah. here. And I think it could be a great moment for awesome things to happen. Like, you know, moving out of the opera world a little bit, my wife has an office job that, as I said, was easily uh, translated into a remote work situation. And uh, her company is very progressive. They're very forward thinking. And I think that they've already decided that when and if people are allowed into the offices again, they're not going to force everyone to be in the office again all the time. Mm-hmm. That is a wonderful thing. Imagine all of the people that are stuck living somewhere that is not where they want to live. Yes. But that's where they have the job that they want or the mm-hmm. job that they like or the job that they need. And now they're able to go and be with their families more often, even if they do have to be mm-hmm. at that place for some part of the year. If it's not all the time, you know, imagine the freedom. The freedom of movement and and not only the freedom of movement so that you feel like, oh, I can see the world, right? I can be anywhere in the world, but also it frees up time. Commuting is a big, big part of the time that is wasted in this country by people. Here in New York City, you can easily like spend one hour on the train just to get to lower Manhattan. (laughs) And even that time is less wasted than the time wasted in San Juan when you can spend an hour on the car. Because you're in a car, you cannot be reading, you cannot be studying, you cannot be sleeping, you have to be paying attention to the road. Mm -hmm. On the train, you can be doing certain things, but not all the things because you're still in a train, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine, imagine having an hour of your day in the morning and an hour of your day at night that is yours. Mm-hmm. This is time you can spend with your kids. Time that you can spend cooking your own meals instead of deciding to order in because you don't have the time and energy to cook. So I think that life may be moving to a better, more flexible, more human way. And that is exciting. And so it, it is horrible the toll that we have had to pay in order to get there. But there's a saying in Spanish, you know, that there, no hay mal que por bien no venga. There's no, no bad thing hap- happens for no good reason. So I'm waiting for the good to come and I am excited and, and hopeful. And I, I really think that it is coming, that good things are going to come out of this. Thank you for <laughs> your time, for opening your space for us. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me and, you know, you're welcome here anytime. Thank you guys for listening and please let us know your social media or your page so people yeah. can reach out. <laughs> okay, so I'm in various places. If you wanna, if you wanna keep track of everything professional that I do, you can always visit me online at my website, which is lauravirella.com. For those of you who speak English, it looks like lauravirella.com. L-A-U-R-A-V-S and Victor, I-R-E. LLA. You can also follow me on Instagram at Mezzo Laura Virella, and you can follow me on Twitter and on F- Facebook under Laura Virella and Laura Virella Mezzo Soprano and all of these things. Bye.
Thank you, Train. <laughs> One last thing, because of my career, I do travel a lot and I enjoy taking beautiful pictures of awesome, like, natural photography. So I open another Instagram account that is called Laura Mirta Travels and I post random nature pictures from all over the world and if you are a fan of like the flora and fauna of the planet you may like that as well and they can find you on youtube as well yes <laughs> laura Vireja on youtube definitely <laughs> and you can follow us at the instagram at the 7 p.m cafe podcast is at the 7 p.m cafe podcast and thank you for listening <laughs>